This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Garcia, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. In this episode of Outspoken, we are going to flip the script. And I get to interview Dr. Benjamin Kothra, one of my beloved colleagues um, who collaborates with me at the Center for Oral and Public History. And yes, this is Natalie Fusakis. You should recognize my voice because Dr. Kothra's interviewed me, I don't even know how many times at this point. Um, So I get to be the interviewer, which thankfully I have a little training in, and you, Ben, get to be the one answering the questions today. So pleasure. I'm thinking this is going to be fun. I think so, too. Uh, We're going to talk today about an exhibit that Ben has curated that is at the Orange County Great Park in Irvine, California. Uh, The title of the exhibit is 52nd Street Jazz and the Photography of William Gottlieb, and it is there until May 1st, 2022. So hopefully uh, for our listeners, uh, our conversation will intrigue them and uh, get them on the freeway and down to the Orange County Great Park. So I want to talk a little bit before we get to this exhibit, Ben. um, Can you tell me a little bit about how you developed an interest in jazz photography? And I know that it's a it's been a long time interest. Yeah, well, I was working as a museum uh, professional public historian in St. Louis, Missouri, and in the 90s. And the idea came that we would do an exhibition on Miles Davis, who was from the St. Louis area. And so uh, I kind of audaciously proposed this and got my wish. Um, And we worked on this project and I got to see this incredible compendium of photographic work from all over the world, people who had made photographs of Miles Davis. And we had in the exhibition that finally uh, went up in 2001, photography from Japan and Switzerland and France and Britain and all kinds of American and Canadian photographers too. And what we were doing, of course, was trying to show this kind of arc of Miles Davis's life and use artifacts as well as images and text and music to do that. Um, and as I kept at this research, I attended a, a, a get-together of the jazz study group at Columbia University in New York the theme of which was jazz and the art of photography. And the idea was to stimulate new research in this area. And I was lucky because I was in town doing research on this Miles Davis project and a friend of mine sort of snuck me in, (laughs) sort of got me in that weekend. So I, I did that and it took me a while, but it really got me sort of first subconsciously thinking about why am I, what am I seeing when I look at all these images, really? What's behind the images? 
and what can they what what can they do what what work can they do as interpretive sources themselves and so it took me a while but when i went back to finish my phd i became i went from a 19th century historian to a 20th century historian and i uh, said you know i think i want to investigate this the the relationship between these two art forms against the backdrop of mid 20th century U.S. history, race relations, civil rights, um, and all of the rest. I thought I was a little crazy. I went into my advisor's office, though, for the for a first meeting to lay this idea on him. And there, behind his desk, was a large framed poster of John Coltrane, <laughs> the, the great <laughs> the great sax player, taken by one of the photographers I wanted to study, Roy de Carava. So. That made me feel a little better. And he said, fine, I don't know how you're going to do it, but go ahead and try to figure it out. And William Gottlieb was one of the people I actually got to interview uh, in 2006, a couple of years before he died. And I think he was my first interview for the project. Um, so I got to go to his home in Great Neck, New York, and he showed me the camera he had used when he made these photographs in the 1940s of uh, jazz musicians on 52nd Street in New York. And uh, from there, that kicked off the rest of the research. It eventually turned into a book. And now here I am revisiting that material. And it's uh, your book is Blue Notes in Black and White, right? Correct? Yes. Um, Blue Notes in Black and White, Photography and Jazz. And then after... That book, you also uh, curated an exhibit with Cal State Fullerton students on a jazz club in San Francisco. Yes, we had a lot of fun with that in 2014. I think it opened in 15 with the, the photographer Kathy Sloan, who had spent the 70s and early 80s photographing performance in the San Francisco Jazz Club Keystone Corner, which was kind of the West Coast place to be for the jazz scene in the 1970s. And she was fantastic to get to know and to learn more about her work. She was also somebody who had the vision to do oral histories and interview and not just interview musicians, but interview the club owner and the person in the kitchen and the and patrons and all kinds of other people so that you got a collective sense of the experience of this place. And so she worked with our students. We, we put an exhibition together that opened the library. And then we also put together a concert featuring people who had played at Keystone Corner. She had photographed all of them. She knew them. And getting them together on our stage was really a lot of fun. And so it was great for our students. And it was a great chance for me to work with somebody whose work I hadn't really featured because my book kind of goes up to about 1965. And then um, I thought I would leave it to others from that point forward. <laughs> As we all have to do at some point in our right. research. There has to be, it has to end, even if it isn't finished, right? It has to end. So tell me a little bit about how this exhibit that's at the Orange County Great Park on 52nd Street, how this exhibit came about. Well, uh, I had been working with the Great Park with, again, a group of students a few years ago on a 
project for one of my classes. And the idea was for them to do an interpretive site report on the Great Park on how, to, how we thought they could improve doing history there because they're still developing their, their exhibit program and what they, what they want to do. So, so I got to know them. And then a little after that, they were putting together an exhibition of um, federal art project poster art from the Great Depression era, the New Deal era. These are posters that advertise New Deal activities and agencies. And they asked if I was interested because they knew I they knew this was my time period that I did a lot of work in. I said, yeah, absolutely, I'll I'll do that. Um, and so that opened in 2017 or 2018. And then uh, they contacted me again during the COVID madness and said, you know, we'd like to do a show that would open in February during Black History Month and would uh, either buy an African-American photographer or something that portrays African-Americans where they are um, participating in the creation of the image. Do you know of anything? <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I do. And again, uh, the first exhibit had been Library of Congress collections, which are public domain, uh, less expensive, but also really significant. They're national treasures. And so too are these photographs, which uh, Bill Gottlieb himself donated to the Library of Congress in 1997. So these are meant to be shared with the public. And we thought that was a perfect uh, way to go. And so... The, the exhibit got moved around several times. COVID was really hard on galleries and museums trying to coordinate. I'd hoped to get some students involved in this, but it just didn't work out. Um, so I just curated it myself. We're in talks to do another, a third one. And I'm really hoping that for that one, I can get students involved and time it right. Amazing. So what kinds of photographs are uh, featured in this exhibit? What, what might we see if we, if we come to the Great Park? Yeah, if you come and see these photos, you're gonna find some amazing uh, work whereby Gottlieb captures these musicians in performance. Most of the shots are done in clubs, but they also function as portraits. He tried to capture the essence of their personalities, even as they were performing. And that was a tricky thing to try to do, especially because the old speed graphic uh, cameras only had, uh, you know, two flash or two uh, exposures per pack. And they were very difficult to handle. He had to have his own big flash. It was very difficult logistically just to get one shot taken. So he might go a whole night in the clubs of 52nd Street and not get a shot or do only two. So he really, really had to know the subjects and he really had to kind of get to know them personally. He was an editor for Downbeat Magazine. So he was, able, he was really a writer who was paid to do that rather than a, the photography was just an add-on that he wanted to do to accompany his articles. But because he got to know his subjects as, as well as he could, he kind of he kind of helped him as he, in those kind of conditions, was trying to capture their personalities uh, on film. So most of them are performance shots. Some of them are backstage scenes. 
There's one really uh, great one where he tells the story of Duke Ellington, who was backstage. He had just come out of the sh- of a shower or something, and he said he, he was just like a fat slob. <laughs> and he said, but then he started putting on, you know, his lotions and started getting out all of his, you know, very elegant clothes and started, you know, putting himself together. And by the time he was done, voila, he was the elegant Duke Ellington and everybody knew. And so he, he captured him in front of his mirror back, in backstage or in, in the dressing room. Um, so again, trying to just kind of capture the essence of these people. Um, and I would say too, that you're going to see if you go to the show, uh, a couple of things that really interested me about these. And I hope they come through with people who are able to visit. One is we're in an era of these photographs, 1946, seven, eight, where, um, images that are respectful of African-Americans are still pretty rare in American society. Uh, We're several years before the advent of Cindy Poitier and a a new kind of film acting, right? For African-Americans, we're we're still in an era where, you know, civil rights is very much, you know, up in the air as an organized movement. It's happening in some places but there isn't a full-on national focus on it like there would be in a few more years. Um, we have places where racial violence is, is still uh, the norm, right, in the 1940s. So for, for Gottlieb, who was Jewish and uh, had just um, lived through uh, World War II, he'd served in the Army stateside, uh, but he knew what had happened in World War II. Uh, he felt a really strong uh, sense that he had to treat these people with dignity and like the artists that he believed they really were. And so the images are, are, are meant to do that and not just to be sort of journalistic coverage of what was happening on the street that week or that month. So, so that's an important thing. The other thing I would, I would, do, I would point out is as beautiful as the images are, and I think it's possible to just go to this show and say, wow, that's a great, what a great photo, isn't that beautiful? They were in fact journalism and therefore almost disposable. I show some images that I first used in my book. Uh, I show the prints that are you know, large format and, and lovely next to the way they were actually <laughs> actually placed and published in Downbeat, which was printed, it was a tabloid, basically it was a tabloid newspaper size and five columns across. And sometimes the image would be on in one column, very small and not exactly printed on, you know, the best right, paper right. there is. And then if you didn't see it at that moment, you might never see that photo again. Uh, in fact, they were not seen again until Gottlieb found a shoebox with all of his negatives in 1978 or so. And his wife said, you know, you have a book here, don't you? <laughs> and he said, I do. He said, yes, look at these. These are rare. Who else has these shots like this? Nobody does. There's going to be interest in this. And so he did put together a book called The Golden Age of Jazz in, in 1979. And 
you know, now these are thought of as precious cultural artifacts, um, famous pictures. The Billie Holiday portrait that you'll see was made into a postage stamp, the US postage stamp. Uh, the Dizzy Gillespie photo you'll see now is in neon at Dizzy's Coca-Cola, the jazz club at Jazz at Lincoln Center. It's an iconic kind of image, right? And so uh, they went from total obscurity. And if you didn't catch them in this really cheap, fleeting format the first time, you wouldn't see it again, to now, you know, precious uh, sources for an era long past. So I think there's there are a lot of levels that one can enjoy these these images, and I, I hope people take a chance to go down there. I'm assuming that you had to choose and pick and choose photographs to put in, because even if, you know, how, how did you make those difficult decisions? Yeah, uh, we worked from the online archive, and there are something like 1,800 of his works and, and uh, uh, just of all kinds of different things. Uh, I ended up sort of deciding to, to do a, a hybrid of beautiful pictures and things that would help us learn something about the time period and the place. So um, the, the, the time period and the place are say the downbeat comparisons but also the um, we I, I chose photos from particular clubs that uh, we knew that this one was from the Onyx Club, or this one was from the Three Deuces Club, and chose them in such a way that they could be placed on a wall as kind of a map of 52nd Street. You could walk down the sidewalk in 1947, and door after door from these small basement clubs, you could hear basically every kind of jazz uh, just by strolling down the sidewalk. You could hear traditional New Orleans, Dixieland type of jazz. You could hear swing music, small group swing music, which was the most popular uh, kind of jazz in the day. And then the other thing you could hear was a new sound that was kind of disconcerting to a lot of these Midtown Manhattan, almost mostly white jazz patrons, which was bebop. It was a more rhythmically complex and harmonically complex music. It was really virtuoso music that had been developed in Harlem during the war by black musicians um, as music that was kind of their music and made their own particular statement. It was beginning to debut though on 52nd Street by the time of the war's end. And one of the things that Gottlieb did was take up the banner of bebop and say, look, uh, you, may, you may think it's noise, but this is the future. And so the exhibit on 52nd Street talks about the way Gottlieb really tried to advocate for bebop in Downbeat, collaborated with the musicians like Dizzy Gillespie to promote it and give it a presence. Because at the time, you know, somebody like Charlie Parker is thought of as this incredible innovator. He must have been something incredible at the time. People must have been amazed by him. He never made the cover of a, of a downbeat magazine, which was the best known magazine that covered jazz. Uh, it still is. It still is to this day. It still exists. 
So Gottlieb kind of did that. And so I, I try to look at 52nd Street as a place that not only is this variety pack of sounds that you could hear just by walking down the street, but also a place where something important from of African-American artistry is emerging into the wider world and the whiter world as well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and Gottlieb is there to capture it right when it, when it does that. This might not be a fair question, but do you have a favorite image? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple. I gave you one, the Duke Ellington one. Right. Uh, another one is the Billie Holiday one. She, it's a kind of a close-up profile. He cropped it a bit of her in performance and her head is thrown back and she's, she's just in full cry. And it's an image of, I think the, the pain, the anguish that you can hear in her voice, but also her beauty and the, the sense of sensitivity of her as a, as an artist, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous image. And it's probably the most famous image of Billie Holiday of the many that are out there. The, the other favorite I have tells a story and it's, it's, it illustrates the way Gottlieb worked and the way musicians worked with him. There was a, a club called the Downbeat. Uh, it was on the street and uh, Dizzy Gillespie was leading a band that night. And uh, the bass player in the band was Ray Brown. Ray Brown's fiance was Ella Fitzgerald who came to the show that night uh, decked out in this extraordinary feathered hat that just had to be seen to be believed. Beautiful, just beautiful. But she'd just come to hear the band, right? She'd come to hear Ray Brown, hear Dizzy Gillespie, who was a friend. And of course, Gillespie, being a showman and, and, and knowing a good opportunity, invites her to come up and sing a song with the band, sing a song or two with the band. So she does. She gets up there. And so at that moment, Gottlieb sees his chance because now he's got Dizzy's attention. And uh, of course, they are in league with each other, trying to create interesting images to give Bebop a foothold. She's going to sing a song, a ballad. And so he, he, Gottlieb sort of, you know, shrugs his shoulder a bit and moves Dizzy into position. Dizzy knows exactly what, he's, what he wants him to do. So Ella Fitzgerald is singing, her eyes are closed, and this beautiful hat is on her head, you know. She had, she'd, she'd come off the street. She wasn't, she right. hadn't come to perform. And Dizzy Gillespie sidles up close to her and with an angelic look on his face, stares up at her with these kind of moon eyes, like she's this goddess who's trans, and he's fallen in love with her. What, you know, it's, right. he's, she's casting a spell on him, right? And he's, he's basically handing it up for, the, for Gottlieb's camera. Ella can't even see. She's, she's got her eyes closed. And that would have made a really cool photograph. But what really makes it interesting is that behind the two of them is Ray Brown, who is her fiance. And he is staring at Gillespie. He's staring daggers at Gillespie. <laughs> I mean, he has a look on his face like, you better get away. I don't know what you're doing, right? Because he doesn't know what's going on either. So it's a, it's a fantastic tableau that he created in the moment with Dizzy's cooperation. And it's a lovely photograph too of Ella Fitzgerald in performance that is as, you know, as good as any that I've seen. 
So those are those are some of my favorites. And it reminds me to answer the rest of your, your other question, the, the other part I wanted to answer the question. Sometimes I just chose pictures because they are they're beautiful and there's a whole wall that are just great portraits of great musicians, just simply that. Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Thelonious Monk, Ella, Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, all of these people that he photographed in that moment, some of whom were not all that well known at that point at all. Right. But that's all the more reason, that's all the more precious, right? Yeah. Later on, they were photographed all the time, but not, not at that moment. So those are some of my favorites. So you've put together exhibits over the last few years, a couple now on your own and a, a, a bunch with students. Uh, what's the difference in your experience of curating exhibit with students and without students? Oh, that's a good question. I uh, should have known you would ask that. Uh, <laughs> I love working with students on an exhibit. Uh, it, it can be um, kind of stressful because there are a lot of moving parts suddenly. It's not as though you're in a classroom, you give a lecture, they take notes, they write a paper, you grade the paper and that's it, right? It's, it's sort of, there's a contained, you know, sense of, of how a class like that is structured. When you're doing an exhibition, anything can happen, really. You're interacting with usually another entity, a venue that hosts it. They may have particular needs or deadlines that you've got to meet, whether the students are up to meeting them or not. <laughs> um, but the best part about it is watching students get excited about creating something that's real, that people will actually come and see. When they write text and I try to walk them through, you know, okay, that, that text is too long. We've we got to trim this down, trim it again, trim it again, you know. How is this exhibit going to be structured? If it's structured this way, how will we actually get it on the walls, you know, and have them try to work through the, the issues that usually are solved behind closed doors at a gallery or museum. You know, it's, it's behind the staff only door. <laughs> but to have them get the chance to think about, uh, wow, how do I make these choices uh, is, really, is really fun. And, and I can't always predict how they're going to, to do something. Uh, if I'm doing a show, I can come up with my ideas, but my best guesses of what they'll do aren't always accurate, but that's fun. That's good. That means that they are collaborating and thinking things through and not just doing something I told them to do. I mean, that would be pretty boring and they wouldn't be learning nearly as much. One last question. You know, what do you hope visitors will take away from this exhibit? I think first a sense of, um, aesthetic enjoyment, because quite honestly, I've been a little starved of aesthetic enjoyment for the past couple of years in public places. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think we all can relate to that. Uh, if, if that's an important part of your life, it's been hard to have fewer of those opportunities. Things are beginning to open up now more, more and more. So that's number one. I think there's some balm there, some healing there that seeing something beautiful and rich, uh, that's, that's what we need. We need more of that. Uh, the other, another thing was I, I hope that visitors try to put themselves not just in the photographer's uh, position, 
because they're going to see his point of view, right? But think as well about how these photographs are really collaborations. The musicians, in many cases, are very obviously collaborating with the photographer. In other ways, it's less, it's more subtle, but they know that in a society that does not fully value their art, uh, these are precious opportunities for potential exposure. Right. And, uh, and the fact that he was working for a magazine that could potentially give them that exposure means that the stakes are really high. And as I said before, in a mid 20th century, that is not anywhere close to sorting out the, the race relations question. Uh, I mean, we aren't either, <laughs> and they weren't then. Right. The stakes are high for the people who are portrayed. You know, about 85% of the, the subjects in the show are African-American. Um, and to just think about that and think about what that meant then and how it can inspire us now to, to treat each other. Gottlieb, one of the last quotes I put in the show, I have quotes from him, from my interviews with him, oh, great. as well as uh, interviews he gave to the Library of Congress when he donated uh, the material. And he said, you know, I was very, very aware of how people were being treated. And I, I was going to do everything I could to not do that, to treat people the right way. And again, as a Jew who knew what had happened, uh, it was very, very personal and intense. And I, I think maybe today, some of our problems talking about this is, it's harder for a lot of people who are not people of color to feel like true allies. You know, they, you know Jews in the mid 20th century were really, really strong allies in the civil rights movement. They donated money, time, organization. Uh, they were allies, as we would call them, right? And they understood very, very well uh, and tragically uh, what it meant to be second-class uh, citizens and to not be treated well. So I think, I think there's an opportunity in this show to think about how this this Jewish American photographer. Um, puts these African-Americans in the lens, collaborates with them in a way that I think is, is maybe a model, maybe something for us to think about. How can we reach across and, and do something together? So I hope, I hope that crosses folks' minds. And if they just see some really great pictures of Charlie Parker, that's fine too. Right. <laughs> um, I assume I'm, and I'm probably not, I'm not giving anything away that in the segment where from the archives after this, people will be able to hear a little bit of the Gottlieb interview. Is that? Yes. Yes. I am, am donating the interviews uh, done for the book. Almost all of the people I interviewed are gone now. Yeah. And it's, I really need to, I really want to make a permanent place for these. And so we'll get to hear some of the interview that I did with Gottlieb, get to hear his voice. That's wonderful. Well, this was really fun. Ben, for me to interview you instead of you interviewing me. And um, again, I, I really hope that uh, folks in the area go out and see uh, this exhibit, 52nd Street, Jazz and the Photography of William Gottlieb that is at the Orange County Great Park till May 1. Thank you so much, Ben.
Thank you for switching places. No problem. I enjoyed it. I did too. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. In this episode of Out of the Archives, we'll listen to clips from Dr. Benjamin Cothra's 2005 interview with photographer William Gottlieb. Gottlieb's photographs are the subject of Dr. Cothra's current exhibit, 52nd Street, Jazz and the Photography of William Gottlieb, on display through May 1st at the Great Park Gallery in Irvine. The complete interview is being processed and will soon be part of the Center's oral history collection. William Gottlieb began his career as a writer and taught himself the technical aspects of photography while writing for the Washington Post. In his interview, he notes that as a writer, he was interested in saying things visually that would go beyond what he could say verbally. In the next two clips, he talks about capturing specific characteristics of jazz greats, Django Reinhardt and Billie Holiday. Give you a, a, a very simple example of what I photographed Django Reinhardt, the guitarist, and that's become a very famous photograph indeed. I was aware that the thing that made him different was the fact that uh, the major figures of his fingering hand was, was uh, had been destroyed in a fire of his caravan. He was a, a gypsy when he was a young man. And in spite of that, or because of that, he became someone who even to this day, and he's long deceased, is the probably the most famous jazz guitarist. So I made sure you uh, saw that cripple hand. And I think the key to it is the fact that I was successful in conveying to the audience what my feelings were towards that particular artist. I mean, the, the most, probably the most famous jazz photo, the one that's reproduced the most, is my shot of Billie Holiday. And that conveys the anguish in her voice, and the beauty in her face, and so on. In his interview, Gottlieb talks about how his approach to photography was not strictly documentarian, but rather a means to convey his own thoughts and impressions of the musicians he admired. Here, he talks about how he accomplished this with a particular photograph of Duke Ellington. At times, I was able to accomplish this subconsciously. Uh, I took a, I took a photograph of Duke Ellington that's been much reproduced in the dressing room. And uh, subconsciously I wanted to show that he was the suave 
debonair person that has been used as language, and uh, he had just come out of a shower, and I saw him naked, where he was another fat slob, but by the time he used all of the lotions that were on his table and put on one of the many suits that he always had with him, he became the debonair Ellington. And I didn't do that wholly consciously, but that seemed to, uh, people seemed to feel that subconsciously too, that that's what the Duke was. Gottlieb captured the golden age of American jazz in the 1930s and 1940s, well before the civil rights movement got underway. In the next three clips, he shares his feelings concerning the prejudice and discrimination of the time. Before you began taking photographs, were you aware of how African Americans had been portrayed and Oh, that, that was a, uh, a paramount issue in my mind. Uh, I had uh, a certain number of black friends, but as a Jew, I felt a great sympathy towards any minority group that would, was oppressed. And so from my elementary school days, I'd always been a partisan. And when the New Deal came in, and, and that had a lot of people that thought the way I did, and even though they didn't go all the way in giving equality uh, to blacks, uh, they went. It, it was a new, a new world, a new, uh, a new era. But I had always uh, been that way. That's been a burning issue for me for a long, long time. And of course, once I hit the jazz scene, uh, I was very much at home. And I got along beautifully with the musicians, partly because they knew I I was not prejudiced, and I was sympathetic with them, and uh, I had them as friends. Did you notice any change after World War II in terms of race relations? And Yes, but it was disappointing that the change was so minimal. <laughs> and I remember when I was in officer's training that the black candidates were all put in a different barracks. 
and I had come from Washington and I had numerous friends of, or acquaintances of influence and I tried to do something about that situation with complete lack of success and to try to stop that business of taking the officer candidates who were black and put them in a, in a separate barracks. I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over 6,000 oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. Thank you, Natalie. This has been Outspoken, the podcast of the DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra, for producer Carrie Markin. Until next time.